0: Welcome to the Global Futures Podcast with me, Joel Sandu. From the Gilets Jaunes or Yellow Vest Movement protests to critique on his political acumen throughout the great national debate, French President Emmanuel Macron has faced many public challenges to his presidency over the past year. The people of France had high hopes for their new centrist leader, but through his term, we have seen his approval rating fall from 66% post election to 26% at the beginning of May 2019. Joining us today to discuss the Macron presidency and contemporary France-EU politics is Sophie Peda, the economist's Paris bureau chief, responsible for the paper's political and economic coverage of France. The paperback of her latest book, Revolution Française: Emmanuel Macron and the Quest to Reinvent a Nation, is out now. Here she is to discuss Macron's plan and action for a more unified and global France, Macron's pro-EU vision, and the upcoming... EU Parliament elections, and her exclusive interview with President Macron away from the public eye. Well, first of all, thank you very much, Sophie, Sophie Pitter, uh, for inviting us to your office here in Paris and uh, for having this conversation with us.
1: It's a great pleasure to meet you.
0: So let me ask you probably the most obvious question. What inspired you to write the book Revolution Française?
1: Well, I think it was um it emerged during the t- the period that I covered the French election campaign because at the very beginning of that election, if you think back to 2017, Uh, It was pretty much, at the beginning of the year, it looked like it was going to be a a centre-right president who'd be elected. Francois Fillon was the candidate. Um, and Emmanuel Macron was an outsider whose chances were considered pretty remote. You know, he's never stood for election before. He was far too young. He was 39. He didn't even have a political party. Um, and although he, you know, he, he generated a lot of interest, I, th- I don't think anybody seriously thought he would um, be elected president that year. And then events turned out the way they did. François Fillon was touched by this corruption scandal and suddenly it became a very serious possibility. And this was, uh, you know, a moment that you really felt France was making history, an extraordinarily surprising moment. And he happened to be someone that I had known for a number of years and had interviewed for a number of years before. So it became obvious during the campaign that I had notebooks and notebooks of material um, based on all those conversations. That And, and, and this would make a, a very strong book.
0: Your book mentions this quite clearly, that Emmanuel Macron came out of nowhere to win the French presidency in 2017. He defeated populism in the form of Marie Le Pen and her party uh, Front National. He upended party politics. Um, he was the outsider and he calls himself the outsider um, that he you know, doesn't owe anybody anything. And there was great hope for this president. Um, and at the same time there are observers who say, okay, this is you know somebody who can breathe fresh air into France, uh, yet there are also those who consider France still a very conservative country. How immense do you think is the task for President Macron to reinvent France?
1: Well, I think, you know, one a key to, the, to answering that question is to look at the first round vote that he had uh, in 2017, and he got 24 percent. So that tells you that 24 percent of the French population are very much uh, ab- attuned to his sort of um, uh, vision of of France in the world, which is open, which is um, absolutely um, at ease with globalization, with tech, technological change, with innovation, with startups. That that's that's the France that is is very much you know his France. But it's twenty four percent, and there is at the same time probably the same uh, share of the French population that is extremely fearful, uh, extremely conservative, extremely worried about the future and and in part justifiably because they're on the, the losing end of of some of the changes in job markets and in deindustrialization and uh, therefore you know are, the, are are those who are more more battered by those sorts of changes and i think that this is this is where where france is today you know france is a fractured country it is a divided country it's um uh, it's, it's just because emmanuel macron was elected doesn't mean that everybody was behind him and I think, in answer to your question, you are looking at at a country that has very mixed feelings about all of these changes. There is there is part of the country, and they vote for Marine Le Pen, or they vote for Jean Luc Mélenchon on the, on the far far left. Um, or for any of those sort of populist politicians who are promising a, a simple solutions to all these challenges, um, Macron doesn't promise simple solutions. He, but he is trying to encourage France to to accept the world, the way the world's changing, uh, and not everyone feels at ease with that. So it's a it's a complex France. It's a it's a divided country, and um, this has been part of his problem.
0: You mentioned France is a very fractured country. I want to push you a little bit more on that. How deep do you see these fractions, and how are they manifesting themselves? Well,
1: well, I think again, you, you, they were, they, they reflected in the presidential election and, and, and again in the Europe, these European elections. Um, the second round in two thousand and seventeen was between Marine Le Pen and Emmanuel Macron. So that is, you know, two representatives of two entirely sort of competing and conflicting visions of the world. Um, and that, that that does reflect the way in which the country uh, is divided. It's partly between, between those who have who stand to sort of benefit in some way, or, or can adapt to things like globalisation and a more open economy. Uh, and those who can't it's also about um, partly about the, the sort of urban geography of France if you look at the big cities big regional cities in France and, and not just Paris but if you look at cities like Lyon or Bordeaux or Lille or, um, or Nantes these are cities that uh, have done really very well they're thriving they've got a big sort of startup scene themselves they have uh, managed to attract a lot of new business um, and jobs in those sorts of and in, in some sectors are doing really well but if you move out out, you know, even sort of 10 20 30 kilometers outside you find sort of second tier towns that are really struggling and that's where you often find you know the the if, if emmanuel macron's voters are the ones in the city center uh the ones in the sort of beyond the suburbs in that sort of zone in between it's not quite rural but it's not quite suburban that's where you find the voters who are have turned to marine le pen who feel that the world has left them behind um, so, I think you know that that is that is the nature of of the fracture It's partly geographical, it's partly uh, social and it's partly economic.
0: Over the past years, France has faced a number of challenges: anti-Semitism racism, anti-elitism. And in your latest edition uh, of your book, uh, Revolution Francaise, you also mentioned the Gilets Jean movement, uh, which I would say captured the world's attention at the level of violence that was involved and also brought together people with different agendas, uh, often even opposing agendas. How much uh, of a surprise was this for Emmanuel Macron, uh, as as you would assess?
1: I think that nobody can fairly claim to have foreseen the uh, the way in which all that anger and that the sort of fractures Im- emerged in in the Gilets Jaunes movement last year. Um, and particularly the violence that it uh, that, that was manifested. Uh, you know, we live in a world. I suppose where social media sort of has legitimised expressions of violence. Um, this the Gilets Jaunes movement was something that was enabled by Facebook. They uh, got together on roundabouts across France, but they did th- did so through uh, sort of cyber connections via Facebook. Um, and there is and has been a, a, a sort of degree of violence associated with the Gilets Jaunes movement it's, it's it's important not to generalise too much because I've, I've spent quite a lot of time uh, reporting from roundabouts in different parts of France um, Normandy or in, in the south of France where part of uh, the movement is very uh, cheerful and pacifist and these are people who feel that they just want their voices to be heard and that the president was arrogant and and uh, disrespectful and that they that, 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 that they have legitimate grievances but it has been a movement that has been uh, infiltrated co-opted or you know manipulated by uh, all sorts of uh, more uh, elements that are seeking uh, either to overthrow the representative democratically elected government altogether or to um, or or elements that have been you know anti-semitic or or from the far right or some very sinister uh, sort of movements as well so it's it's been a a a particularly violent expression of 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 anger in france Um, and i think it's that that was that has taken everyone by surprise and certainly uh, president macron himself as well
0: you've covered French politics for quite some time. Did it, capt- did it capture your attention in such a way? Did it catch you? Like, were you surprised?
1: Yes. I, I, again, you know, I, I, when I was updating my book for the paperback edition, I wanted to go back and look, you know, and try and be very honest. What did I foresee and what did I not foresee? And you know, there were there are lines that I quote again in the forward to the paperback saying, you know, yes, I was talking about the fact that Macron had a problem speaking to those who felt left behind by globalization, people who do not want to talk the, the sort of language of, of tech and startup and, and feel that that has nothing to do with their lives and that, that that was a real risk and a danger for him. But what I certainly didn't foresee was their the way in which this became expressed and and the violent nature of it. Um, you know, I think you have to sort of put it in some context, which is that uh, France does have a history of of uh, not, not necessarily violent protests, but of street theatre and demonstrations. Um, and in some respects, that's what you might have expected. That's to say demos on the street, marches, protests. France is very good at that. They, you know, the French like that sort of theatre, but that that's not something, uh, that that's very different to the gilets jaunes movement. Most demonstrations all have to be organised, they are declared to the police, they follow protesters, follow, you know, pre-assigned routes down city streets, and that sort of thing is uh, part of French culture. But this, the gilets jaunes movement was unstructured, un- leaderless. Uh, right at the beginning nobody kn- knew who to talk to, the Prime Minister at one point wanted to invite them to speak and there was no one who was prepared to turn up to a meeting um, because they didn't want to have A leader, and it it, that made it very different, difficult to deal with, but also very different. So, no, I don't think um, I I certainly wouldn't claim to have foreseen neither the degree of violence of the of the anger nor the sort of the sort of way in which it was manifested in this extremely unusual an almost unprecedented form of social, social movement.
0: You mentioned theatre. Uh, I want to talk about the great national debate which uh, President Macron engaged himself with with uh, the French public. Some people say, you know, this was a move that he used to appease the protesters. Uh, Mr. Mélenchon called it masquerade, a theatre. The Gilets Jaunes uh, Facebook followers uh, called it blah, blah. How would you assess how he did, with the, how did it go down with the French public in general?
1: It's very interesting because right at the beginning when he announced this it was in December and it was a moment of sort of high panic and uh, within the presidency in a sense that there needed to be some dramatic and original and radical solutions on offer and Macron announced this that he would have this great debate and there was a lot of sort of derision and scorn poured on the idea particularly among the, the, the commentators in Paris who, you know, along the lines of, well, you can't just calm a a violent social movement by saying we're going to sit down and have a sort of intellectual debate. Uh, So there was a lot of scepticism about it. But I think what uh, turned it, and certainly for me, the the first um, one, I followed uh, Macron to a debate in Evry, which is south of Paris. And it was a debate that started at six in the evening, um, and I think most people who turned up there in this municipal um, sort of building next to the town hall, sitting on these white plastic chairs and um, on, a, on a on a relatively cold sort of wintry night, thought they would be there for an hour or two at the most. And six hours later at midnight, Macron finally had exhausted the entire audience, answered every question that was put to him um, and, and managed to, to leave. And I think that that, having sat through those six hours and watched him at work and watched a, a sceptical audience um, come round to the fact that he was taking their questions seriously, he was uh, taking notes, answering them, sitting on the white plastic chairs just like everybody else. All of that, I think, did mean something to people. Now, you know, there was a section of the French population where who, who believe, you know, I suspect that nothing he could do or say or offer or promise will make any difference at all. You know, he, he is... Um, uh, not, uh, he's not going to win those the, that section of the population round. But this sort of, you know, sceptical middle ground who felt perhaps that he had acted in too Jupiterian a way as president and had become arrogant and had become um, condescending towards ordinary people that they felt that this was a different sort of president, and and I think that in the end of the day has for a certain section of the population has has made has made a difference and you know if you also have to just look at the numbers who participated in the online debates you know 1.9 million people took part um that's that's a fair representation of uh you know a, a, a sort of de- in terms of democratic participation it's not bad
0: you wrote this book at the beginning, uh, or it came out at the beginning of uh, President Macron's presidency when his approval rating were about 66% post-election. And according to Washington Post and YouGov, at the beginning of May this year, it had dropped down to 26%. Now, in your book, you, you've you sat down and you've interviewed him personally and uh, the last section of your book you know he mentions you know he's an outsider he was you know a banker turned politician and when he was a banker people didn't really see him that way when he was a politician they didn't see him as a politician he doesn't care what people think at the same time you write well every leader must care how people think and I think the word you use was approbation he needs approval how worried do you think he is when he sees his approval rating plummet so far down
1: I think one of the reasons that I I wrote what I did was that it seemed to me disingenuous to suggest that you don't care about approval ratings. All politicians do, and there's an element of narcissism about anyone who goes into politics, I think, and therefore, you know, it's just not true. That you don't care at all i think what macron does have probably is a fairly thick skin about criticism and an ability i think to withstand a degree of that in the name of continuing to kind of pursue the goals he thinks are important and reforming france building europe um, and and trying to sort of bring about uh, a change in 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 culture really in in france but um, it was, I suspect, not quite so much the uh, drop in the polls during the Gilets Jaunes protests as the protests and the degree of violence expressed towards him personally. I mean, there were effigies of him that were guillotined during some of these manifestations, the demonstrations, um, towards him, towards his wife. I think that that really shook him. And towards the end of 2018, sorry, last year that was there was a moment where he was really very down and it's not surprising the anyone would find it difficult to withstand that so i would say it's not so much polls but uh, it is the, the, the hatred, the hatred that was expressed in a very violent way that, that uh, I I, th- I think did did have quite a profound effect on him. Having said that, the poll ratings have recovered, and it's interesting to look at them now. They are pretty much where they were at the beginning of the gilets jaunes protest, so they have dipped down to very low levels, and they're now back up. He is, at this point in his presidency, less popular than Nicolas Sarkozy was at this point, but uh, more popular than François Hollande was. So, you know, yes, he's not popular, but it could, could be worse.
0: You mentioned the Jupiterian president. And for some of our listeners, they may not be aware that uh, President Macron has this nickname, uh, Jupiter. Can you tell us a little bit about this name, where it comes from? What does it mean and how it got stuck to him?
1: Well, it's interesting because he, him, he never used the term to refer to himself. He referred to it as a, in a sort of theoretical way when he was uh, not uh, elected president. He was not even a candidate at the time. He was really talking about uh, sort of concepts of the presidency under the Fifth Republic in France and how different people uh, might embody that. And he was referring to Uh, the presidency of François Hollande as being the normal presidency. That's the way François Hollande wanted to be seen, a normal president. He wanted to normalize it, not to sort of sit there on a throne and govern from above, but to uh, be, you know, maybe almost more like a sort of Scandinavian sort of leader, a normal sort of guy um, presiding over France, something that sits slightly oddly with with the institution itself because it is a very centralizing, extremely powerful presidency. Um, Macron at the time wanted to that to what he could called a Jupiterian presidency. So that would be someone who tried to embody the nation, more sort of de Gaulle like in 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 style and in, in govern in the way of governing. Um, and that's, that's something that he was ref- he referred to in, in, in a positive sense. You know, that's the way he thought the French wanted their president to be. Anyway, after he was elected, that term stuck and Jupiter has become a term of abuse um, uh, and, and a sort of for- way of mocking what became, a, an ex- to some minds, an excessively sort of monarchical way of occupying the, the, the democratic uh, presidency.
0: Let's talk about Europe and France and Europe. Now, in early March, uh, President Macron gave his European Renaissance speech and also ideas about how he envisions reforms for for the European Union. What are the underlying ideas behind this vision and where do you think he sees France within this vision?
1: I think, you know, you have to go back to um, some very sort of profound, I think, uh, pro-European convictions that Macron holds. He feels very strongly that France Uh, alone and any European country alone can't uh, stand up uh, in the world, to the forces of rising China or for of uh, the the US, particularly the US, in a position of some of of geostrategic retreat um, from Europe, that Europe needs to be able to stand up for itself. And in order to do that, each country needs to cede some form of sovereignty to Europe um, in order to give Europe a chance of uh, protecting its values, uh, projecting those uh, values and and defending its interests. And that—that that I think is—is is, he, he believes very, very powerfully and very strongly that France can't do this alone, and that no other country can either. That's the sort of underlying vision. In terms of um, the sort of policies he wants to pursue to get there, he sees, I think, Europe as as as, as a in, in, as a sort of multi-tiered. Uh, organization and at the heart of it sits the Eurozone and that's why he's been pushing so strongly for uh, a more integrated Eurozone with the Eurozone budget that he wants to be uh, significant. He's very frustrated that progress has been so slow um, particularly in the face of reticence in Berlin um, about that but also beyond. Um, so a Euro- an inter- more integrated Eurozone, a, st- a much stronger sense of uh, European defense and a European input on in a, in a, on a host of. Of uh, subjects, whether it's tech, whether it's investing in artificial intelligence for tomorrow, whether it's about regulating, um, uh, creating a safe space on the internet, whether it's about creating a more of a, of, a, of a sense of sort of European solidarity among among countries. But I think it's the the underlying point he's um, that, that drives all of this is that Europe Europe together is stronger than any individual country is alone, and that's what has to be the sort of the principle be- behind everything that, that he's trying to. To
0: do. In a sense you're already answering the question that's about to come up but I have to ask about Brexit. Um, what impact has Brexit had on his vision of Europe because also within the speech on European Renaissance he mentions that Brexit be a lesson for all of us.
1: You know he um, has always said that he regretted Brexit but th- he respected the vote. Um, he is perceived I think in the UK as being um, particularly taking a particularly hard-line position about Brexit because he said that he is prepared to uh, accept that Brexit might happen under a no-deal scenario, which w- would be very bad news for France, but even worse news for the UK. Um, and he—that's why he's taken this uh, particularly tough line over granting an extension. He had wanted uh, an even shorter extension, and he, he agreed to the extension up to up till uh, October, uh, against his sort of preferences. Um, I think that what Macron, what motivates that position is is, is there are various reasons. Part of it is precisely. For domestic political reasons, that he does want to to try and show those who argue for Brexit, which in the past, uh, if you take Marine Le Pen's position in the past, she's argued for uh, a referendum on French membership. She doesn't do she doesn't argue for that anymore, but there's still you know that it's I think it's important for Macron to show for French domestic reasons that there isn't a you know you're 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 worse off out of. The European Union than you would be within, but I think you know that there is actually a much more fundamental reason for what for the position he's taken, and that's that he does have these ambitions for Europe. He does have uh, projects he's trying to pursue, and he's you know with mixed success. And there, are, I think he feels that having the UK inside is just draining on energy on resources on time for his ministers and his advisors, and those of the other 27 and that this is a a constant uh, distraction from his ability to get on with his 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 ambitions so it's not that uk i don't think it's because he thinks the uk is going to be obstructive or difficult that while it's you know negotiating Brexit but still in the EU, but that the very presence of the UK um, and this unresolved question of Brexit is just uh, a distraction from, from his ambitions.
0: I want to pull out from France and Europe and talk about France within the global stage before coming back to your book. France obviously has to deal within the international economy. President Macron had invited uh, the US President Donald Trump to a state visit with you know full guard ceremony and everything. In 2018, in January, he also, you know, fired the pistol by going to China, visiting President Xi Jinping and also gifting him a special horse from the French cavalry. So he's really doing this charm offensive. At the same time, his country, you know, Macron, or for that matter, France, has to compete with these two global superpowers, economic powers. What do you think are some of the big challenges uh, for the president when having to compete with, you know, the U.S. and China?
1: Well, I think he would. uh, His his answer would be that it's not France; it's Europe that needs to be uh, a sort of set set itself up necessarily in some respects as a competitor, but also just um, as a a a way of uh, defending the values that Europe Europe uh, holds dear, and that those in China or the U.S. Um, may may not so I don't think he sees it as a as a purely French question. It's a it's for him I I, I would say a, a European question. In terms of his relationship with I mean if you take Donald Trump as a good example, uh, again you know Macron is someone who's very good at establishing bilateral relations uh, on the whole, and people come out of meetings with him on often kind of under uh, an, an, a quite unusual sort of uh, charm. Uh, and I think he thought that that was working on Donald Trump in the uh, in the, those early meetings.
0: Well, he considered both of them as outsiders winning presidencies, in right? In a
1: way, yes. And he told me in one of the interviews I did for my book, he told me that he, you know, I I, I like Donald Trump. He, he felt that there was something he could relate to in their in the, uh, paths to power, I suppose. But um, w- w- the hopes that he had that that kind of relationship he might be able to Persuade Donald Trump to move on some issues have been pretty much dashed on almost all subjects. I mean, from climate, uh, the Paris Climate Agreement to the Iran nuclear deal, uh, it's been a, a series of disappointments. I think that if you were to ask um, his advisors or Macron himself now, they would say, "Well, they're not going to give up trying." But I think that their ambitions have had to be scaled, been to be scaled back quite dramatically in terms of what they can actually hope to achieve. I, I think that it's the ambitions and the his hopes for um, being able to convince or push or nudge certain other world leaders in, in his direction have just had to be scaled back.
0: Penultimate an question, and I find this extremely interesting. At the end of your book, you sit down for an exclusive interview with President Macron to discuss the beginning of his presidency. And the chapter begins with a quote from Niccolo Machiavelli and the quote from his book, The Prince. And I quote Everyone sees what you appear to be. If you experience what you really are, and I have to ask you, Sophie, what was President Macron like off the camera and in person, and what surprised you the most about the man?
1: You know, one of the words that comes to mind often when I when I've been you know tr- thinking about the, the the character, the personality, the sort of person that Emmanuel Macron is, is um, inscrutable. You know, he really has, I think, developed around him. A almost a sort of outer outer shell he is outwardly extremely charming um, unusual as a politician to interview a lot of politicians um, give you the impression sometimes that you're wasting your their time um, and that they'd rather be somewhere else uh, he doesn't do that and it's um, very common for anyone who's, who's, who's done an interview that he engages in questions he thinks about the questions uh, and therefore, one comes away with a sense of an extremely sort of empathetic and um, and charming uh, personality. But I would say that he has—it's uh, very difficult to know what's behind that, because I think this goes back to some of the things that have that he's lived through in his own life, and in particular, I would say the marriage to Brigitte and the. A huge amount of reproach and censure that he had to deal with and disapproval in the town of Amiens uh, when this took place, uh, I think, has probably contributed to hardening a sort of outer shell, and that that makes him, therefore, as a, uh, as, a as a as an individual, as a, as a political character, um, inscrutable in many in many ways.
0: I go back to the first question. I'll end with this one um, because our time is almost up. You've covered. French politics, French economy for a long time, and now you've written this wonderful book, which is uh, highly recommendable to read. When you finished this book and you closed it, what was the thought that went through your head? You're uh, glad thank, it's finally thank, done. Thank goodness <laughs> I finished
1: it. Um, <laughs> no, I think it felt, it felt like this was a story that had to be written, and I really felt that during the election, that uh, you know, this was an extraordinary moment. Somebody, a young guy comes from nowhere, seizes the presidency at his first go, um And is taking over a country that is incredibly difficult to govern um split and divided in so many ways at a time in history when there's a, faced with the rise of populism there aren 't many world leaders, let alone leaders um, who of of this kind of age and and political inexperience, who have nonetheless got the ideas got. Uh, a sort of vision, got got convictions, and end up in the presidency with the challenge of trying to put those into place. So, I think I felt yes, um, obviously relief, uh, but also that this really is a story that um, that had to be told, and um, you you, know, you couldn't you really couldn't have made it up.
0: Well, I'm glad you told the story, and to our Global Futures podcast listeners, I was talking to Sophie Petter. Her book is out now. Revolution Francais, Emmanuel Macron, and the Quest to Reinvent a Nation. It's published by Bloomsbury UK. Check out the new paperback version of Revolution Francais. It's updated with thoughts on what the Gilets Jaunes movement means for the Macron presidency. Sophie, thank you so very much for taking your time out to discuss this with me.
1: It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you.
0: This episode of the Global Futures Podcast was presented by me, Joel Sandu, and produced by Sonia Sugarova, with support from Evan Yoshimoto from the Global Public Policy Institute. Our guest today was Sophie Peta. For a full list of Global Governance Futures products, including scenario reports, opinion pieces, interviews, and other podcasts, visit ggfutures.net forward slash analysis.